Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. When he went down that morning to see them at breakfast, he decided he needed to save the world. He went to his room and returned with a shotgun. His father tried to wrestle the shotgun from him, and it was at that point that the first shot was fired. And from there, um, you know, it was pandemonium, basically. In 1997, Stephen Anderson killed six people and injured four others in the little North Island town of Rorimu. It's one of New Zealand's worst mass killings. Anderson had paranoid schizophrenia and was eventually found not guilty by reason of insanity. I'm Jesse Mulligan and this is Crimes NZ, a podcast where I speak with people connected to our country's most serious crimes. Shortly we'll be talking with News Hub Investigations reporter Michael Mora, but first here's Jim Bolger, who was New Zealand's Prime Minister in 1997. The biggest difficulty of course is if a person does have a, a, a mental disability or for whatever reason. Uh, enters into the mental state where you're likely to murder six people, uh, then you're probably not going to have any gun laws that are going to prevent every one of those incidents taking place. The person who uh, engages in this sort of a slaughter obviously is not normal at the time they're doing it. They obviously have some uh, uh, some psychotic disability at that stage, some mental disability at that stage. No normal person goes out and shoots six people and wounds six people. That's former Prime Minister Jim Bolger speaking to Morning Report in February 1997. And News Hub Investigations reporter Michael Mora interviewed Stephen for a report on him and the case several years ago. He joins me now. Hi, Michael. Hi, great to be here, Jesse. Yeah, nice to have you in studio. Um, how did you get interested in this case? Well, I think um, actually what originally sort of prompted me to tell the story, I mean, don't forget this was um, in, uh, nine, you know, many, many years ago um, before I'd even um, thought about starting my journalism career. But I guess I felt that we had all heard a lot in the media about the horror of that day. Um, we'd heard from families, we'd heard from survivors, we'd heard from politicians, we'd heard from commentators. What I didn't think we'd heard a lot from is from Stephen Anderson himself. And I really wanted to understand, I guess, what Steve was thinking that day. Um, I wanted to get an insight into his mental state. And I also think I wanted to challenge some of the stigma that surrounded Rorimu and the horrific events that unfolded. Um, this story, in my opinion, has long been characterised um, as a story of fear and misunderstanding. 
Um, and I guess I wanted to delve into this story to raise awareness about mental health um, and to tell a story that was from the person at the centre of it all. Mm. Because when horrific events like this happen, it's easy to characterise someone as a mass killer and that's it. They're just a mass killer. They don't deserve a place in society. They deserve to be locked up. And it was actually one particular headline that I read um, in a news article that really piqued my interest in the story. And from what I had observed of the coverage of this tragedy, it was always the headlines like, Mass Killer Gets Leave, Mass Killer Returns to Hospital, Mass Killer Gets a Job, Mass Killer Is Sacked from Job. And I, I, I guess I sort of felt that while I understand the news value in someone who has committed such horrific crimes, I felt that there needed to be a a, a bit of a balancing of mm. the table, if, if so to speak, because I felt like some of the um, headlines that had been produced around this event were, in my opinion, sensationalist. And, and there's value in doing that, not just so that we get to know the person or so that they get a, a fair show in the media, but also often with a mass shooting, you don't get the opportunity to talk to the perpetrator afterwards because they take their own life or they're shot by police. And so I suppose it was a rare opportunity to get inside the head of somebody who'd done something so horrific. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it, it is pretty rare. Um, and Stephen um, and his mother, Helen, have, for very good reason, been very reluctant to talk to anyone in the media. You know, why, why would you, considering what's happened, um, can, can considering you how many people yeah. um, died? Can you tell a, a bit about, the, um, about what it took to get him to sit down with you? I was reading through some of the previous reporting um, on this case and um, I, I, I simply approached it in the sense that I wanted to tell Stephen's story for once. It wasn't um, a story where I was going to, you know, be seeking to have reaction from different politicians or, uh, you know, different commentators on whether the decision um, for him not to be yeah. thrown in jail, lock and key, was the right one. It was purely a, a, his story, what happened that day, what he was thinking in an attempt to educate the public about mental health and to help people understand that on that day, Stephen uh, was in a deluded, confused state. So can you give us a bit of background to that day in 1997? Tell us a bit about Stephen. Yeah, so, I mean, this is uh, without a doubt, you know, up there with one of the worst, you know, mass shootings we'd seen at the time, um, right up there with the Bain and the Aramawana killings. And this all happened um, in uh, February 8th, 1997. And your listeners may know or recognise the name Rauremu, probably because of the events that unfolded there. But it's also a small uh, North Island settlement 
central North Island and if you've ever gone skiing at Whakapapa, you may well have passed through this on the way to the mountain. It's probably it's about... The, it's got the spiral train track, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. It's probably about 30 or 40 minutes from the mountain. And so on this weekend, um, Stephen's family... Helen and Neville Anderson had got some friends together, four other couples, for a weekend break at their family lodge in Rorimu. So Stephen's dad had built the lodge there um, years earlier as a family holiday home, and Stephen had been unwell at the time, so his parents, um, Helen and Neville, decided that the best thing to do and the safest thing was to bring Stephen with them for the weekend, as they didn't think he was well enough to stay in Wellington. Now, just at this point, it's probably good to point out that um, two years earlier, Stephen had been diagnosed with schizophrenia. And so schizophrenia is a, um, a chronic condition um, and symptoms can vary from mild to severe. At the severe end, you can become delusional or even have hallucinations where you see, hear or smell things that are not there in reality. And so... It's characterised by episodes of what's called psychosis and that's where you can have changes in your thoughts and your perceptions and your mood. And Stephen Anderson, when he arrived at the lodge, at the family lodge in Rorimu on that day, um, was experiencing the beginning of, of a psychotic episode. And it was breakfast time on the morning of February the 8th when this tragedy unfolded, um, Stephen had not been taking his medication and had been using cannabis uh, prior to the events that unfolded. And Stephen told me, while he loved his family, at this time he was so paranoid, so confused, he became convinced that his father and his father's friends who were in that room were part of a conspiracy to end the world. And his father, he thought, was the ringleader of this conspiracy. And he loved his father. He grew up with him um, going into the bush and leading a fairly normal um, childhood. But in his words, when he went down that morning to see them at breakfast, he decided he needed to save the world. And he went into the family dining room where he saw everyone, and this was really confirmation of his beliefs at the time, his thoughts. This was confirmation that he needed to take action. And it was at this point that he went to his room and returned with a shotgun. And his father tried to wrestle the shotgun from him, and it was at that point that the first shot was fired. And from there, um, you know, it was pandemonium, basically. People were scrambling to get away. Stephen's mother managed to escape out a window, um, but many others didn't. And many of them were shot at point-blank range and uh, died at the scene. Um, in total, ten people were shot, and six of them would die on that day. Why did he have access to a shotgun? Well, that's one of the issues that has come up in time and time again. His father uh, would often do hunting. Clearly there was an issue here with the safekeeping of that firearm. Clearly in Stephen's state, he should have never been 
able to access nor know where weapons like this were. So that was, you know, just one of many of the issues um, that were identified in the lead-up to this crisis. But it's worth also bearing in mind that at this time there was no real understanding of exactly how sick Stephen was, exactly what was going through his mind or what it was that he was about to carry out. Yeah. Six were killed, as you say. Four were wounded. How serious were those injuries? Oh, um, you know, really serious. Um, I mean, some of these uh, people are, you know, still sort of getting through the injuries. And I, I, I guess it's important to also, you know, acknowledge all the families um, and victims on that day and bearing in mind that, you know, talking about this does bring up all these memories and resurface everything, um, not only for Stephen and his mother and their family, but also for all of the victims. And I, I just want to, um, you know, convey my condolences and sympathies to all of those um, who were killed or injured um, on that day. So including those who were shot and died were Neville Anderson, Steve's father, Anthony McCarthy, a family friend of the Andersons who had come to stay for the weekend, John Matthews, a family friend, Stephen Hansen, Andrea Brander, and Henk van der Wettering, who was a neighbour of the Andersons in Rauremu. So I just want to acknowledge those families because bringing something like this up, as it does come up sometimes in the media, is always pretty raw. And I yeah. know a lot of these people, uh, those who survived um, and families who lost loved ones, probably won't go a single day without remembering what occurred way back then. Yeah, thanks for saying that. And, and you know, people do really... Um, people are fascinated by crimes and, and too often when we're covering them we forget that there are real victims out there and families of victims. Have you spoken to any of the victims in the course of your investigations in this um, case? Uh, yes, I have. I notified all the families when I ran the story um, ahead of running it to give them a heads up about that it was coming out. I know for some families they will never, ever forget or forgive what happened on that day in 1997. Some, but not all, will say that Stephen Anderson should have been given a proper punishment. He should have been locked up and not given the opportunities that those who died um, have had taken from them. But I know that others appreciated uh, my coverage of the story. Incredibly, his mother escaped. Yeah, that's right. And Stephen said to me um, himself, I mean, that was just pure luck. There's every chance that he would have shot his mother, um, Helen, on that day. Um, it was just fortunate that she managed to get out a window and um, get to the neighbours where the police were called. You know, you can imagine the terror. There's a people sort of, you know, running around the place and hiding in bush, um, lying on the floor, pretending to be dead... It was absolute chaos and eventually the police uh, rolled in in helicopters and managed to arrest Stephen uh, where he was, you know, taken away and later admitted to murder quite quickly. Did he try and escape or, or hide or leave the premises? Uh, he was still on the premises. I think there was a period where he was hiding in bush um, but I don't think that he um, actively tried to evade 
law enforcement for hours and hours, although um, in his words he told me he didn't trust the police at the time. Um, he eventually surrendered and gave up and was taken away. What are his mother's feelings about the day and, and about Stephen? Look, um, um, Helen is really an incredible woman who has provided so much love and support to Stephen over this period. You know, she said to me at the time when this happened and um, Stephen was arrested and taken to the Forensic and Rehabilitation Hospital in Porirua, initially actually, sorry, he was taken to, um, I think, Waikiria Prison and at that point... You know, Helen was sort of wanted to visit but was in two minds. I mean, you can imagine um, if um, such atrocities had been carried out, um, how how you would feel as a a mum. But Mm. then she said she turned up at the prison and saw Stephen and um, just gave him a big hug and, you know, told him that that she loved him. And I think that her, her feelings is that she just wants the best for her son. And she wants and hopes that society will get to a stage where they understand that on that day, Stephen was not Steve. He was acting on things that were not real. Um, And that's certainly the sentiment that Stephen articulated throughout the interview, that the point at which he took that gun and began shooting, he was in a state of psychosis where what he perceived to be doing he thought was the right thing. He thought that that was the right thing and he had to take action to save the world. And that's the the sad thing about um, mental illness and um, having that understanding. And I guess from Helen's perspective, yeah, as I say, who's been so incredibly supportive over all these years, um, she hopes that she and her son can um, get on and 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 try and live a normal-ish life. Mm. And, and yet still you will know that it won't sit comfortably with a lot of people listening, the idea that someone could commit six murders, four attempted murders, and, and then we say, well, they weren't in control of their actions and they thought reality was different, and so that's, that's that, right? So where do we seek responsibility, culpability, or, or, or how do we change things so it doesn't happen again? Well, I think there's been some huge learnings from what happened um, in Rorimu and one of the things that came out was that the coroner found there were multiple shortcomings um, in Stephen's care before the tragedy. You know, a a coroner would later find that after the killings there were gaps in his treatment, which the coroner described as inexcusable and confusion over who was monitoring Stephen, patient notes were not being shared and experts just weren't kind of communicating with each other about what was really going on. In the sense of culpability, I think that the law as it stands is is there for a reason, and it's very hard to understand, as you just mentioned, if you think about it. Stephen was acquitted of all six charges of murder, so he doesn't actually even have a conviction So he was found not guilty by reason of insanity. And this is a very difficult concept to understand because basically he's not guilty by reason of insanity because that means the person was so mentally disturbed or incapacitated at the time of the offence that did not have the intent to commit the crime. So that is determined by a judge based on relevant medical evidence. 
So broadly speaking, it means the defendant is deemed not mentally capable of being legally responsible for their actions. That is, of course, a, a difficult concept to grasp, but that is the reality of our laws, yeah. and that is the way it has been for some time. What can you tell us about the trial? Well, I didn't um, a- attend the trial, but I know that it went on for you know a, a, a very, very long time. And, you know, it's not something that any of the families or survivors will ever forget because um, at the end of it, of course, some family members wanted him to go to jail. And so you can imagine as as a parent or sibling for the person who's been in the dock to be basically um, given, given the tick that, oh, actually, you're not guilty of anything. And that's, that's a very harsh reality um, to cope with, to know that the punishment as we would think is proper, i.e. locking someone up and throwing away the key, is not dealt out. But in my opinion, there has been a huge penalty here. Stephen has spent decades at a rehabilitation and forensic hospital in Porirua where he's been gradually allowed over various periods of his life a little more freedom to go and see his mother and to try and get on but you know I I guess Stephen knows that what he did back then was wrong he knows that now taking the medication um, the antipsychotics and that sort of thing is an important part of his rehabilitation and helps him you know um, remain steady and um, on top of things and he just hopes that people will see him being compliant with that treatment as a way of kind of moving forward. But, I mean, in terms of um, a punishment, I think Stephen Anderson um, has been through, you know, a, a, a fair amount, um, not seeking to minimise here what those who have lost loved ones on that day um, have been through themselves. How much... Um, do you think, or, or in your analysis, does the um, the cannabis use have to do with what happened that day? Um, look, I think there's evidence that cannabis can contribute to psychosis and it can you know, increase problems in those who are already having mood disorders. I think that's been well established. And I think, you know, Stephen probably knows that um, and at the time of course was telling his parents that he was complying with his you know medication in fact in reality he was taking it sporadically and uh, increasingly he was you know using cannabis and I think this kind of begun you know in his in his teenage years I mean Stephen had a very normal upbringing you know he lived in nice homes in, in Wellington and in very nice suburbs um, you know, he, he travelled um, overseas with his parents. He loved both his parents. He'd go out on um, outdoors hunting trips with his, with his dad, Neville. But I think it was um, in his early teenage years where, you know, he said to me that he just felt that he wasn't in a good space and all he knew was that the world didn't seem like a very friendly place and that he didn't like himself and this is ultimately where things started to unravel. And I think it sort of began with what he thought might have been depression. 
But certainly um, I think there's evidence that um, cannabis is not a useful drug when you have um, diagnosis of schizophrenia. So what is he like 20 years or so after this event? What's he like as a, as a person? Look, um, I actually found him to be a pretty kind and caring individual. Of course, he said to me that, you know, Michael, I'm, I'm not the monster that I've been painted out to be, and I'd have to agree with that. I found him a very calm and actually quite humorous individual. He's a very talented artist and is busy crafting jewellery and gold and silver, and that is a great thing for him. Um, you know, it's often uh, people describe a thing called mindfulness, and I think Stephen's found an outlet, if you like, where he can focus and um, create, and that's what his passion is. That's what he loves doing. So I found him to be a, a, a gentle, kind, and thoughtful individual uh, when I met him, and I found his mum, Helen, to be um, endlessly supportive and loving and you know, I think without Helen's support of Stephen, um, things, you know, could be very different for him at, at, at this juncture in his life. And he's, he knows that and is, you know, forever grateful for um, his mum who has stood by him and helped him recover over many, many years to the point where he is now. Has he forgiven himself? Oh, I, it's a hard question and I put this question to Stephen and he said... He had kind of, you know, let himself off the hook a little bit, but he had not fully forgiven himself from from my impressions, and that's certainly what he said, I think. He wakes up every day knowing what he did, feeling remorse, and trying to sort of move on with his life. And so I don't think he has, you know, fully forgiven himself, but... I, I do know that while um, some family members will say that, um, you know, Stephen hasn't shown remorse and he should be kind of um, locked up and uh, done away with, there are actually, I was surprised at the response I got from my story at the time, um, including from a woman who was John Matthews' brother. John Matthews was one of those a good friend of um, the Andersons who was shot that day and died. And I'll just read you a little um, bit of her email. This was the day after the story went mm. to air. It was apparent to us throughout this that Stephen was very unwell, that the world for him at the time of the tragedy was not like the world for anyone else. We therefore have always accepted that he was sick and that the verdict at his trial was just and correct. Thank you again for your professionalism in the story. I'm not sure that everyone will be happy with your work, but what you and your team have done is important. It is important that those who suffer from mental health conditions are not stigmatised and that they are able to take their place in society once again. And I guess that last sentence about taking place in society once again is really Steve's overriding wish. He just wants to be Steve. To a degree... Steve will always face a bit of a hostile world. You can't get out of what happened. You can't bury that. You can't smooth that over. But what he can try and do is 
progress with his life, contribute to society in a meaningful way, the key is if society will allow him to do that. Thanks for listening to this episode of Crimes NZ with me, Jesse Mulligan. There's a huge back catalogue of Crimes NZ episodes to binge, from the disappearance of Ben Smart and Olivia Hope to the kidnapping of Baby Kahu. They are all available on the RNZ podcast page or on Apple, Spotify, iHeartRadio or wherever you catch your podcasts. Don't forget to follow our series and if you enjoyed it, give it a rating so others can find it too. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.